You are listening to John DeYard's Life Spa, your premier source for health news and Ayurveda, where modern science meets ancient wisdom. Hi, everybody. Welcome to LifeSpa.com. And today's podcast, uh, we have a really special guest, a instant best-selling author, James Nestor, who wrote a book called Breath. Um, he previously wrote a book called Deep, which is about uh, free diving. And I'm imagining that he learned a lot about breathing and that intrigued him to want to dig into nasal breathing and functional breathing, something that we as a culture have lost. And uh, I'm super happy to have him here. He's written for Scientific America, Outside, New York Times, uh, The Atlantic. His book is soon to be published in 15 different languages. Uh, like I said, it was an instant bestseller. You have to read this book, this book called Breath is the most important book that I probably have ever read. And uh, I am so thrilled to have um, James with us today. Um, you know, our, my first book, Body Mind Sport, is all about, we did research on nasal breathing versus mouth breathing exercise. And uh, to actually see a book that is, that is kind, of, kind of collated all the current science on nasal breathing and the value of that. You know, people thought, still think that I'm crazy when I, when I wrote my first article on taping your mouth closed at night while you sleep, we had the most unsubscribes in my newsletter than we ever had before in the history of our newsletter. People thought John's completely lost it and I'm out. And uh, so now you're gonna read this book and read more science from Stanford and Harvard telling you, yeah, it's probably a really good idea for you to tape that mouth closed and shut our mouth and, and live a long, healthy life. So without any further ado, James, Nestor, thank you so much for being here. I am so honored uh, to talk to you. Uh, you know, my life's work was about nasal breathing and trying to bring that to the world. And I did a little, I made a dent, a small dent way back in the day when my book, first book came out. Um, but you have blown this out of the water and I, and I have so much to ask you, but thanks for being here. Uh, I guess first question really is, um, how did you, what did DEEP teach you? And then how did that motivate you to go to, to, to breath? So I was on assignment for Outside Magazine to go write about something called the World Freediving Championship, which is this very odd competition in which these divers challenge one another to see how deep they can dive on a single breath and come back to the surface conscious. And I didn't know too much about freediving, even though I had spent most of my youth and still most of my adult life in the ocean. I surf all the time, but didn't know about the sport at all. And I saw these people just look like regular people take a single breath and dive down to 300, 400 feet with, with no fins or anything. They can hold their breath for seven, eight, nine minutes at a time. So I saw the true potential of breathing in water and I was lucky enough to connect with some of these free divers. They told me, no, 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 this free diving is just the tip of the iceberg. Breathing can help us heal our bodies in many ways. It can help us excel athletically. It can help extend longevity on and on and on. And it was interesting enough for me to want to go pursue it. And that's what I did for several years. So, so you did a lot of research um, looking at ancient skulls around the world and the difference between the skulls and modern skulls and ancient skulls. Um, tell us what you found out and tell us a little, about, a little bit about your experience when they plugged your nose for just two weeks and they did the, the chimpanzees were plugged for a, a year, right? Tell us about that. Yeah, so when you go and write a book about breathing, the last thing you think you're gonna be doing is looking through ancient skulls. 
But it turned out I had been talking to some biological anthropologists and they had told me that our ability to breathe has really disappeared throughout our species. I said, what, what are you talking about? I had understood that evolution worked in the straight line of progress. Then they had me look around and see so many of these diseases, see so many of these people with, with chronic problems. And they said, no, 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 evolution means change. And our faces have been changing in ways that are deleterious to our health, specifically that are damaging to our ability to breathe. And all you need to do if you doubt this claim, which sounded completely nuts to me, is look at ancient skulls. And there's 99.9% .9 chance they're going to have perfectly straight teeth, forward-growing faces, huge nasal apertures. They were able to breathe better with these larger mouths. And if you look at a modern skull, 90% chance it's going to have crooked teeth, just like my mouth is a perfect example. So when a mouth grows too small, teeth have nowhere to go. So they grow in crooked. Having a small mouth also makes for a smaller airway, which is one of the main reasons so many of us have sleep apnea, snoring, and respiratory problems. And this completely blew my mind because I had been told that all of those things were genetic. You know, they weren't tied to, it's just something, they're so um, common right now that no one really questioned where they came from. And to think that all of this damage just came, came about in the last few hundred years was shocking to me. And the, and the main reason for that is, you know, as you talk about in your book, um, is the food, right? We, we, we chewed and that created a strong jaw and opened up our airways. So talk, me, talk, us, talk to us about, like here in Colorado, they actually give gum to kids before they do their standardized test because they're smarter when they chew gum. So tell us about chewing and what does that actually do when you don't chew to the palate in the airways? So our ancestors were chewing something like four hours a day, an incredible amount. And we were doing that all the way up until just a few hundred years ago when industrialized foods just flooded into every city right. and eventually flooded into every country. So the problem with industrialized foods without, you know, beyond being nutritionally deficient in vitamins and minerals is they require basically no chewing. If you think about baked goods, if you think about canned stuff, jarred stuff, stuff with sugar, sweets, all of this stuff, a couple matches of the mouth and it's gone. And chewing is especially important in infancy and in childhood because I put breastfeeding under the umbrella of chewing because breastfeeding requires a ton of stress on the mouth, helps actually pull the face out. And they've done studies looking at kids who have been breastfed versus those who have been bottle fed. And those who have been breastfed have a lower incidence of snoring and sleep apnea later on in life because they have bigger mouths. And they've, they've also done some studies looking at uh, the crookedness of their teeth compared to bottle fed and breastfed. So even if you, a kid has been bottle fed, you can still catch up on this growth by uh, chewing actual foods instead of soft Gerber stuff right off the bat. Uh, our ancestors went from breastfeeding to chewing food and that allowed the mouth to, to grow larger. So by having that stress, you can build the musculature and help build more bone mass. So this, the palate on the top of the mouth is able to fall down and creates a larger mouth. And if you don't do that, you look like me, where if you have a thumb, a clean thumb, you can put your thumb to the roof of your mouth. And if there's a big indentation there, your mouth didn't grow wide enough. And that indentation can push up to the sinuses and make it harder to breathe from your nose. So all of this anatomical change has really made us the worst breathers in the animal kingdom. So when you put your thumb up there, exactly what should it feel like? Should it feel like just a nice, even arch? 
uh, definitely shouldn't be kind of peaking like this. It should be flat or a nice arch. What, did you, what would you expect? Should definitely be flatter. If you look at ancient skulls, theirs were flat and had a very mm -hmm. soft arch to them. If you look at modern skulls now, you can look at mine, goes straight up. It's called a V-shaped arch. And Dennis had been warning about this. They've known about this for over a hundred years. They said kids with these V-shaped arches, they also had uh, problems, attitude problems, emotional problems, breathing problems, because that, that is all related to breathing, especially breathing during sleep. If you have sleep apnea and snoring when you're a kid, it can cause a lot of developmental issues. Okay. So how does nose breathing fix that? Well, nose breathing, as opposed to mouth breathing, I feel so silly <laughs> telling you about this. <laughs> you wrote the book on this, but I'll try to give the cliff notes that I culled no, no, from no. a lot of your research. You're not talking to me. You're talking to everyone else. So, and, and, and I won't really, I, I am so enamored by having you here and talking to you. Please, just really, I'm serious. Because, I mean, people, how, what the mouth nose breathing does to open up that palate, People don't know about that. And I haven't really written about that. So you're on, need you. <laughs> so right now, if people open, if you open your mouth just a little bit, you're gonna feel the tongue rocking back into the airway. That's a smaller airway, it's harder to breathe through. Closing the mouth, the tongue is gonna to naturally lift to the upper palate. So the reason why nasal breathing is so important, and this really isn't controversial anymore. If anyone actually looks at the actual science from experts in the field, it's, it's completely acknowledged that nasal breathing is so much healthier because it humidifies air, it pressurizes air, it heats air out, and it helps remove pathogens. If you were to slit my head in half, and I've, I've done this in a CAT scan, this structure right here takes up about the equivalent volume of a racquetball or a billiard ball. So air is forced to run through this gauntlet of these turbinates. So as it runs through this, it is cleansed and it is conditioned so that by the time it reaches the airway and the lungs, it can be better absorbed. We get 20% more oxygen breathing equivalent breaths through the nose than we do through the mouth. If you look at the mouth with that same scan, <clears throat> None of that's there. It's a straight line in. So you can think of the lungs almost like an external organ when you're breathing through the mouth. They are exposed to pollutants, allergens, whatever, viruses, whatever's in the air. This is our first line of defense for our health. And it's no coincidence that you look at any other animal in the wild, they're all breathing through their noses all the time. It's similar to the, uh, the internal combustion engine when they first created the piston and the piston chamber would pull the air in and they had just a, a valve, which was a hole and the gas and the air would go in there. And, and the, the explosion would happen in one spot and then the engines would last a very short time. Then they created a, a turbinate really making the nose and they swirled the air into this refined stream of air, which happens in our nose and drives the air all the way down into the lower lobes of your lungs. And that's what they did with the pistons in the internal in, in, in combustion engine. And now that air goes through this valve and drives the air and expand into the whole chamber. And that's one of the reasons why we have is a, an internal combustion engine that lasts. You know, when I was in India and I was doing research on nose breathing, I ran across studies where, it, where uh, ancient um, yeah, studies where um, 
uh, infantries. They had nose breathing infantries and mouth breathing infantries and the, the nose breathing infantries never got sick and the mouth breathing did. And there were stories where moms would always teach their kids how to tuck their chin and close your mouth and never let them become nose breathers. And I was, my first book was about, I was fascinated by the runner's high. I wanted to prove that we could reproduce the runner's high with nose breathing. And we did that with brainwave coherence and alpha production of the brain through nose versus mouth breathing. But I was like, I don't want to talk about like babies. And I want to talk, I was so interested in the, in the, uh, in, in the exercise component of it that I, that I completely missed that. Um, but I have written about that. And, and now in your, in your book, you talk about how it was naturally existed in Native American children and, and how, these, how nasal breathing was something that was taught to cultures around the world throughout our history, right? Absolutely. It kept popping up. So I did this deep dive into all of these ancient scripts and, you know, it pops up in early Hindu literature. So they were huge nose breathers. And then you go to China and in the Tao, there's seven books of the Tao dedicated only to breathing. So that's, that's it. And they specifically say, you breathe through your mouth, you're going to be sick. If you want a long life and you want to be healthy, you have to breathe through your nose all the time. This was 1400 years ago. And so it's interesting to hear all these anecdotes of people saying, you know, these, this tribe only breathed through their nose, this other tribe only breathed through their nose. But, you know, with so much of Western culture, we need to see the science. And what's so great now is we have instruments to very easily measure the difference of nasal breathing versus mouth breathing. Neuroscientists have been doing this for years and of finding that you are able to remember so much better breathing through your nose. There's coherence in the emotional centers through your brain, breathing through your nose. You get more oxygen. I mean, you're able to engage the diaphragm more, which can release more lymph fluid. So we can measure all this stuff that the ancients have been talking about for thousands of years. And that to me is what's so convincing about it all. So let's, let's talk about nose breathing while you sleep at night and the benefits of mouth taping. Um, we, and I've written about how you produce more nitric oxide, um, you obviously when you, when you breathe through your nose. And that's just a, eight hours of solid nitric oxide delivery into your respiratory system. Um, but there are other benefits about breathing through your nose, like we slowly build up CO2 tolerance, which we don't have with mouth breathing. Um, so talk about the benefits of mouth taping. I'd love to hear how you do it with a beard because that's always intrigues me. Like if I start getting a little hair, it does, the tape doesn't stay on. So I want to know how you, what your trick is for that. And, um, and then let's talk about um, mouth taping and let's, let's move into CO2 tolerance, what that is. So I saw the real power of mouth taping and breathing through the nose at night when I was in the midst of the Stanford study. What that was is it was a 20-day experiment where I was working with the chief of rhinology research at Stanford. He's a big nose guy. I didn't need to convince him of anything to do with the nose. We had, had many conversations. He said, it's, it's a tragedy that 25 to 50% of the modern population habitually breathes through its mouth. They don't know what they're missing. They're causing themselves undue harm. And we know that, we know all the problems associated with mouth breathing, not controversial at all. No one knew how quickly it came on. So I said, you're at Stanford, you're at the top institution, why don't you study it? But he had no money allocated for it. And so I volunteered for an experiment that we set together. And um, 
it was set there were two people in it that's as many as we could get we had to pay for it out of pocket because stanford's really hard up for cash everyone everyone knows that um and the way it was set up is 10 days uh where our noses were going to be plugged so silicon up the nose tape over that and 10 days of just nasal breathing where we would tape our mouths most of the time and a lot of people thought i told my friends they're like oh it's like supersize me it's a jackass stunt it's not what we're doing is lulling ourselves into a position that so much of the population already knows talk to people with chronic sinusitis talk to that 25 to 50 percent of the people who breathe through their mouth the difference was we we're measuring it so now to answer your question regarding sleep i went from not snoring at all to snoring an hour and a half the first night. So a few hours of mouth breathing. Next night, I was snoring even more. Three nights later, I was snoring through half the night. So, so an increase of 5,000%, you know? And the other subject <clears throat> in the study had the exact same, exact same track, but worse. He was snoring four or five hours through night. We also got, within two days, we got sleep apnea. So we were choking on ourselves. <laughs> Our blood, pre my blood pressure went up 20 points um, right off the bat, cortisol levels, I mean, stress levels, heart rate variability plummeted, you name it, all of the above, which isn't so much of a shock to people who've actually studied this, but for people who are habitual mouth breathers, it was shocking to them. The first night that we removed, thank God, after 10 days, it was pretty bad. We removed this, breathing through the nose. Snoring went down to, I think, 20 minutes. The next, next night, zero. Zero sleep apnea. Same with the other subject. We went from snoring through half the night to zero. And this just wasn't something that I hear too many people in sleep medicine talking about. Just the pathway through which you breathe has so much to do with snoring and sleep apnea, and especially people with mild or moderate problems. Severe is a whole, a whole different can of worms. But since this book has come out, one of the most inspiring things is I've gotten probably 200 emails of people who had snoring, who had sleep apnea, who have been in sleep studies. Nothing was helping them. They were taking tranquilizers, which is actually making it a lot worse, all those problems worse, who went from having this for decades to zero. And they've calculated it with different instruments, Snore Lab. And they said, why haven't, hasn't anyone talked, told me this for the past 20 years? So this was something you were doing 20 years ago. And so I just have to say that was not in vain. The, the word is out there. And last time I checked Amazon, there was no sleep tape in stock. 3M micro pore tape was all sold out. So I guess 3M's very happy about this. I'm not sure if sleep medicine is, but there it is. Yeah, I had the same experience when I wrote Body Minus Port. And I wrote a lot about exercise-induced asthma and breathing concerns. I had a lot of athletes who couldn't, who were so scared to even go for a walk, let alone a run. And then we would get them breathing again. And then, and then I ended up getting just, again, you know, so many, back then there wasn't emails. I don't know how, I guess it must have, must have been letters. I forget now how it was way back then. But I got so many. It was one guy in Vail. He would buy cases of my book because he cured his asthma. And he would give it to all his friends. He was a tennis player and he couldn't play tennis. So, I mean, we've both seen the, the, the magic of breathing through your nose. And definitely when you tape your mouth at night, that tongue gets jammed up to the roof of the mouth. And it, does, it, does it actually flatten out the palate over time? Do you actually see that in your studies? Uh, they know that when you're developing in early childhood, 
your oral posture will definitely influence your, your skeleture. It will influence the palate. And they've even found that people with mouth breathing will have more crooked teeth versus people. It's, it's hard to do a longitudinal study because you don't want to take a group of kids and say, you can only breathe through your mouth for 10 years and you have to breathe <laughs> through your nose. But they've done more anecdotal studies, empirical studies of looking at twins or, or looking at groups of the same family in the same environment. Weston Price did a bunch of this work as, as right. well. So, so it's, to me, again, there's, there's not controversy about this. Uh, dental researchers have shown oral posture plays such a huge part. So to answer your question about sleep tape, I realized I didn't in that last tirade I just gave you, but I have a little sleep tape here. This is 3M Micropore tape. You can use whatever brand. No, 3M isn't sponsoring me. I went through, tried about 10 different brands. I like this one the most. This roll is about three bucks. It'll last me about six months. So people say, um, you know, oh, you need a chin strap. You have a beard. You have a mustache. And I, I beg to differ. I've been sleep taping for a couple of years. This is what I do. Okay. I take some of the adhesive off. The point is to not hermetically seal your mouth. I can still talk to you. It's just yeah. to train the jaw shut. So when I do this, I'm breathing through my nose. To take it off, I use my tongue. Right. So people say, oh, this... You know, what, what if you, you panic? I don't want to feel like I'm in a hostage situation. This comes right off. And there are a zillion different ways to do this. Whatever works for people is great. I've found all I need is the smallest piece of tape to train the mouth shut. And I've heard from other people that they like this more because it's nerve wracking, especially people with anxiety, to tape their whole mouth shut. Just a, a teeny piece of tape I've found works pretty well. No, I think that's brilliant, taping it this way. I actually tape it from under my nose right down to the middle of my chin. And then I, what I like to do is I tuck my lips like that, put the tape on. Then when I relax, I get a really good seal. And then and I, think as you, and I think, as you said, when you first tape your mouth, you're a little like, oh, my God, I'm going to suffocate tonight. I'm going to die. Um, and doing what you did gives you absolute like, okay, I can breathe if I need to. But as you become more comfortable, you're not going to die. Um, I find that I, I like to kind of get a good seal. And if I get a good seal all night long, uh, I wake up just the way I went to sleep. But there's many nights where, uh, you know, I rip it off or it falls off or, you know, you know, and I find it's really an interesting measurement. Like if I, you know, have a glass of wine, which I have on occasion, really rarely once a month or something. Um, I noticed that, that those kind of situations where I'm either stressed or have a late night or then I don't breathe as well or a glass of wine, or my liver is working hard that night to detoxify the alcohol, I, I, I don't breathe as well. So it's really an interesting measure, uh, almost like taking your blood sugar in the morning, which I do every morning to see what your numbers are. You get this instant feedback of what's good and what's not good. And, and I think it's really a, a brilliant way to do it. And I think you can, as you, you know, as you, and I've been nose breathing for 20 years. And, and when, I, when I, I still, when I don't put my, when I don't put tape on, I still find my mouth opening up. So, um, you know, I think over time you, you can, uh, you can um, train, your brain, train your brain or your, your jaw to close, but I think it takes some time. Yeah. One question, you mentioned in your book that you can change the, the, uh, the, the skull and the structure of the skull up until 70 years of age. Does that mean that with nose breathing, the palate can actually um, kind of level out or become less V-shaped? Can that happen I'm- with old folks like me? It's, it's only been measured, I think, at, at 70, but I'm pretty sure it goes, goes further than that. 
So as oh, far God. as breathing and the role that palatal expansion has, I don't think that there's been too much real hard science on that. They know that chewing and they know that palatal expanders can definitely open the palate at, at virtually any age. Um, one dentist had a client who she was in her early 70s and showed massive airway uh, growth. Uh, it, it expanded from using a palatal expander, which I experimented with as well, because I had been told by so many different researchers, impossible to grow bone past the age of around 30, 32, impossible to grow, grow the airway. You can't increase your airway size. But I had seen case studies of about four dozen people who had done just that with scans. So I thought, you know, I'm a reporter. Why don't I try this out? So I used this palatal expander. Not everyone needs this. I was just curious. I wore it at night. So it goes on the top of the mouth of a very small mouth, extractions, braces, orthodontics, all that crud. And this just gently, every about couple weeks, you turn this little dowel screw and it opens it gently up just a little bit. If you have that same thumb, you just, a lot of putting the thumb in the mouth here on this interview, but there is a, you can feel a suture in the middle of your upper palate. And that suture is the same suture that is in uh, your skull. And it can open at any time and it can fill with stem cells and expand. And when you do that, you are expanding your airway. When you expand your airway, you can breathe easier. And if you can breathe easier, everything changes. I showed about within one year, about 15 to 20% expansion in my airway, which is enormous. And, and even I built new bone in the front of my face in the maxilla, which we've been told is impossible. You can check out the CAT scans, which were done by the Mayo Clinic and see for yourself. You said it was five pennies worth, right? Yeah, distributed throughout my face. Um, wow. So, and what this thing does, uh, the really neat thing about the device I use called a homeoblock is it also stimulates chewing stress. So you wanna right. open, gently open that palate, okay, very gently, but then you wanna fill it in with stem cells. You wanna fill it in with, it's, it's uh, osteoblast. So um, you wanna fill in that bone and you do that by chewing. So, so you, when you chew, everyone thinks the skull is the static thing. When you chew, the skull moves around just slightly and the sphenoid bone also separates. And this is what we're meant to do. And there's so many other reasons you should be chewing, um, but to help tone this airway, which is a muscular tube, it can get flabby just like any other muscle if it's not used by chewing helps to strengthen it and to tone it. And it can have a huge effect on snoring and sleep apnea. We've seen that with people who have done oral pharyngeal exercises. This is moving the tongue to the roof of the mouth. It's just like lifting weights for your tongue and your throat. And the science is very clear. This has a, can have a huge effect for many people and it's free, so why not? That was the, the mewing, right? The John mewing, his research. No, by mewing. Can you demonstrate that for us? It's hard to demonstrate. It's going to look like I'm about to vomit, but that's just, <laughs> that's life, people. You can fast forward this section. But all it is, some people call it mewing, um, but all it is, these are oral pharyngeal exercises, which you can look it up. Chest, which is the top journal, uh, promoted these exercises for snoring and sleep apnea. And that article is eas easily searchable. It involves placing the tongue to the roof of the mouth. So the tip of the tongue hits just the back of the front teeth. 
and then you move that tongue backwards. And then you move it forward. And so the important part is the, the root of the tongue, not so much the tip is where you get a lot of pressure. The tongue is a very strong muscle and you push that to the back of the palate. You just do this gently and you do this often. So I really wish that they, someone would do a year long study looking at a group of controls who were mewing or doing oral pharyngeal exercises versus those who haven't. Luckily they have over, over a couple of months looked at snoring and sleep apnea and found it can have a tremendous benefit. But it'd be interesting to see if there's, there's real movement in the palate. Uh, I believe there is, and anecdotally people have reported they've been measuring the distance between their molars and are finding it expanding. I haven't seen that in scientific literature, but there's a lot of scientists out there. This would be a wonderful study. Give me a call, we'll help set it up. Well, so the pressure is from the front, pulling, it, pulling your tongue with pressure on the palate going back, right? So it's going front to back. That's, that's right. But then there's another exercise that does just the opposite. The other so, one, right, yeah. right. Front to back and then yeah. back to front, almost like a, like a wave. Yeah. Yeah. So um, one of my kids had a, had a, had a, a palate spreader when he went and uh, it was part of his, ortho, his, it was his orthodontics. Um, how many orthodontics, orthodontists do you think are, are using these like homeo blocks or mono blocks and these kind of spreading devices as opposed to just straightening teeth and pulling teeth. There is a huge revolution going on in dentistry right now. And you can see this with all these new organizations, American Academy of Myofunctional Sciences or AAPMD. But dentists have known about this for a long time. And from what I've heard from the dentists who have been in the field for a very long time, 30 or 40 years, they said, this has been the dirty little secret. Braces and traditional orthodontics are, this is production line dentistry. And, and it works, it straightens teeth, does nothing for airway health. And there's some significant research that came out of Stanford a couple years ago that showed it can actually decrease your, your airway and make breathing harder. So if you think about it, the principles of that make a lot of sense. My mouth is too small for my teeth. My teeth are growing in crooked. What's gonna happen if we remove some teeth get some headgear, push the mouth back and crane the remaining teeth together more, you're gonna make a small mouth smaller. That's the, and look at Paul Ehrlich's uh, research that he did released through Stanford University Press, a book called Jaws, which lays this all out very clearly on what can happen. So palatal expansion has, this was the first orthodontics that started 120 years ago. People were expanding, they weren't contracting. <laughs> and then once again, uh, someone developed in the 30s and 40s, like this palatal expansion takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort. Can't we do this very quickly? And that's right, you know, when production line um, uh, therapies and, and other means to, to produce things much quicker start really coming online. And so this is what I'm filtering you is not my opinion. This is from some of the leaders in the field who've studied this stuff. So that's how orthodontics have been done. But there is now this huge shift happening now where they've realized their folly. And this isn't to point fingers, science changes. We learn new things all the time. So let's acknowledge new facts, new data and change the practices to benefit people. But in, in my opinion, what's gonna happen when you expand a palate create more room for those teeth to grow in straight, what else is gonna happen? You're gonna open the airway. And these dentists, these case studies of these, 
these kids who have had allergies, asthma, neurological issues, because they can't breathe. And when you fix their breathing, they found that so many of these things just go away because they're all attached to respiratory health. Beautiful. I, I, I love that. And it's such, such great information. And it's, it's, you know, what I write about at lifespot.com is ancient wisdom, modern science. And when you just look even a hundred years ago, we knew so much and then we <clears throat> threw it all away. We, we, uh, um, I want to kind of move into the idea of pranayama. I, I, um, when I read the, the uh, Hatha Yoga Pradipika and the, the Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, which is about nasal breathing, pranayama techniques, they mentioned that, the, uh, <clears throat> that pranayama, breathing techniques, is not pranayama unless you actually do what's called a kumbhak or a breath hold or a breath retention. And breath retention is now well scientifically um, you know, validated with something called intermittent hypoxia. And intermittent hypoxia means just, you know, just like, like we know calorie restriction, a little bit of starvation, all this Nobel Prize winning autophagy and stem cell activation happens. We now know that a little bit of suffocation, a little bit of air hunger recruits these same kind of emergency vehicles, your stem cells, your EPO, which Lance Armstrong got busted for injecting, nitric oxide, Nobel, Nobel Prize winning panacea molecule, you know, endothelial growth factors and lower blood sugar, all these kinds of things happen. And when you think about tying together, like you just said, nose breathing to spread the palate to trigger stem cells. And if you add that to um, you know, pranayama breathing techniques with comfortable training in breath holding, where you begin to activate stem cells, you, you can make some massive changes in your physiology. And that's ancient wisdom backed by just, just volumes of modern science. Um, so talk to me a little bit about what you know about breath holding. So when we are holding our breath unconsciously, it's bad news. Look at sleep apnea, which something like a quarter of the population has been related, correlated directly to metabolic issues, neurological issues, Alzheimer's. I mean, I, there's a laundry list of problems, cancer, right. on and on and on. Everyone knows that. Holding your breath unconsciously when you're answering emails or you're stressed out, bad news as well. Dr. Margaret Chesney looked into this for the past 20 years, NIH research, very legit, and was looking at people, office workers, who would sit down, get stressed out, and just stop breathing. Then they go, <sighs> so that's a stress response, and it's gonna put them in a sympathetic state, stress hormones, cortisol, whole bunch of problems when that becomes chronic. But something very different happens when we consciously choose to hold our breath. All of those benefits you just mentioned, we gain control of this stuff, and we're able to make our bodies more flexible. And one, one thing I thought was very interesting is you look at populations of people who have asthma, anxiety, fear-based problems, anorexia, almost all of them, not, not everybody, but a large percentage of those populations have a very low threshold of CO2 tolerance. So they're breathing like this. And they're often mouth breathing because they associate, breathing is triggered by CO2, not oxygen. They associate that increase of CO2, that breath hold, with an attack. So when they start breathing and they feel like they're holding their breath, what do they do? They go, <sighs> that causes all of that constriction and it brings on the attack. So by allowing these people to consciously hold their breath, you're gonna increase their CO2 tolerance 
You're going to allow them to breathe normally and to breathe more slowly, which is exactly what they need to do. So if you look at the work by Dr. Alicia Muret, if you look at the work of Dr. Justin Feinstein, NIH studies here again, Muret looked at populations of asthmatics and panic sufferers and found that she was able to diagnose a panic attack an hour before it came on by just looking at CO2. By having these people just take slower breaths, increase their CO2, calm themselves down. She was, I think in the first two months, 50, 40 to 50% had zero panic attacks. By nine months, I think it was nobody had had a panic. I mean, it's just, don't quote me on those numbers, but you can look up the study. It was extraordinary. And the same thing with asthma. So when people say breathing is not attached or correlated to so many mental conditions, what are assumed to be mental conditions, look at the science and see what it says. So uh, to, to speak more directly to your, to your question here, I realized a little tangent there, but, oh, but breath holding allows you to comfortably acclimate yourself to become more comfortable with holding your breath. So when your CO2 rises, I'm cool with it. You don't go into a panic state, which is why breath holding these other practices were been used in armed forces, use box breathing to acclimate themselves to stay in control. And that's really what it's all about. Yeah, I wrote an article recently about the different types of breath retention ayurvedically. One was to hold your breath on the inhale. One was to hold your breath on the exhale. When you hold your breath on the inhale, you're holding in more oxygen. So it's more of an oxygen dominant state which is a stimulating kind of a intervention. So people who were kind of like hypo, you know, hypometabolic or lethargic or tired or depressed, they would be prescribed this kind of you know, internal in inhalation breath hold where an exhalation breath hold will get rid of all the oxygen, CO2 levels would breathe up, breathe, will build up, and CO2 is a sedative, even a tranquilizer. So that would be prescribed for folks who are hyperactive, most of our people in our culture are hyperactive. So most folks probably these days need more exhalation breath hold to actually let the CO2 build up where you become tolerant to that a little bit, which is uh, something that we, we desperately need. You also wrote in your book about the, the, the magic of breathing slowly uh, at six breaths per minute. And I found a study that also showed that when you breathe exactly at six breaths per minute, that actually stops the chemoreceptors in your brain from reacting to CO2. I don't know if you wrote about that or, or, or not in your book, but uh, I definitely, I don't know where I found that, but um, you may have, I may have gotten it from your book, but I thought I got it in the study. Um, but, but the, the, and, and your, your amazing research, we correlated that to like a rosary and prayer beads and how all these ancient techniques of prayer were tied to rhythmical, long, slow breathing. Talk, talk to me a little bit about that. That was fascinating. About 20 years ago, some Italian researchers were looking at the rosary and they're in, in its original Latin, and they noticed that it took about, the respiratory rate was about five to six breaths per minute, 5.5 if you wanna be particular, um, for the congregation to recite what the priest says and back and forth. They said, oh, this is interesting. Then they looked at the Buddhist chant, most famous Buddhist chant, Om Mani Padmi Hum, same respiratory rate. Then they looked at Om, which a lot of people know, same thing, Satanama, uh, Kundalini chant, same thing. So they took some subjects in and they had them recite 
these different prayers. I don't even think these people were religious and they placed sensors all over their bodies and they found that the oxygen to their brain increased, their heart rate slowed, circulation increased, and even more amazing, all of the systems of their body entered what they called a state of coherence where if you looked at it, and I tried this with heart rate variability and some other monitors, usually it's very jagged lines. We're talking right now. There's not a lot of coherence happening with my brain waves and my respiratory rate or anything. But when you breathe at this rate, all of those lines, and it's a beautiful thing to see, go from jagged and staticky to these long mm. sine waves. So you can feel this by just breathing at a rate, I say 5.5 in my book, but then people have written said, what happens if you're half a second off? Don't worry about it. Five to six breaths per minute is all you need. And you can feel this. And I have borderline higher blood pressure. And I've noticed just after a couple minutes of breathing this way, I would take my blood pressure before and after, I could drop 10 to 15 points. And so wow. you imagine, it's that's after a couple minutes. What if you breathe this way for a couple of days or a couple of weeks or a couple of months? Well, I've seen the people who have done that, who have healed themselves of unhealable, uncurable conditions. That sounds crazy, but again, look at the science and it's very clear what happens here. So you have a lot of, we have a lot of breathing techniques that are on the web and some are fast breathing techniques like Wim Hof and some are really slow, long breathing techniques like, um, like Buteco, which is more parasympathetic dominant. Others like Wim Hof are more sympathetic dominant. You know, in Ayurveda, there's Bastrika, which is sympathetic dominant, Kapalabhate, sympathetic dominant, Ujjayi, parasympathetic dominant. There's breath holes, there's breath retention. There's, so, you know, when you look at the ancient understanding of it, there wasn't one kind of breathing that fits all. It was this understanding that we're going to prescribe these breathing techniques. And even like you said, which I love that you said in your book, that the original yoga, which I've written about as well, was to sit in one posture, one pretzel-like posture, if you will. And while you're in that stress position, you breathe into a calm. So you create the composure and calm, the eye of the storm in the midst of this dynamic posture. That's the whole point of my first book is, you know, being in that eye of the storm and, and, and shooting the arrow from that place of total holding that bow perfectly still and functioning from that place of peace and calm. And that's what the breathing techniques are, are really um, truly all about. But all these different breathing techniques, they have different effects. And there was one common denominator as I've written about many of the pranayama breathing techniques, doesn't matter if it's fast or slow, they all change neuroplasticity, which is the ability for your brain to mold. And when you look at ancient Ayurvedic wisdom, the premise of Ayurveda, the premise of pranayama, it wasn't to fix your heartburn, even though breathing does that, by the way. Uh, it was actually to become conscious, to, to change old mental emotional patterns of behavior that we created as young children that we're still projecting on the screen today as adults and doing the same dumb stuff emotionally and mentally in our lives again and again and again. And that's something that I've been writing about and treating my patients with and fascinated by is how these ancient breathing techniques can actually change neuroplasticity and, and change old patterns of behavior. Ayurveda said that the that these impressions are stored in the white matter of your brain, the waxy myelin sheaths, and literally scratched into the myelin sheaths and recorded. So if you ran into a cave when you were 10 years old and a bear came out, you're never gonna forget that cave. And we have that memory for that reason. But a lot of the traumas as childhood, we don't need to hold on to those memories. 
And this is what Ayurveda called Tarpaka Kapha. And it has to do with brain lymphatics and the lymphatic system and how breathing moves that lymphatic system and how the breathing can rewrite those impressions of the brain. And this is kind of my, my fascination because what I see after being in practice for almost 40 years now, it's, all, it's this crazy mind of ours that gets us in the most trouble. And breathing and mouth breathing and nose breathing, I mean, the benefits are phenomenal. But at the end of the day, you want to really move the needle in terms of becoming conscious, letting who we truly are out as opposed to reacting to this world in a, and being triggered or stimulated only by reward chemistry or dopamine and trying to let the delicate petals of our flower, if you will, open, feel safe to be who we truly are. That's my, my passion and my, my fascination about and why I'm writing so much about breathing. So my question to you then is, who have you talked to and what research have you dug up that shows that these breathing techniques do in fact change old mental emotional patterns or at least make us conscious or, or, or support neuroplasticity? And what does that mean in terms of, you know, letting go of old emotional patterns? So our mind can dictate how we breathe. Our emotional state can be reflected in how we breathe, but our breathing can also <laughs> affect our emotional state. So we know that that is when you breathe at a certain rate, you can actually affect how you're thinking about things. As far as unlocking hidden traumas that have been there for a while, you can look at the work of Stanislav Grof, who's done a lot of this work. You can look at some aspects of Wim Hof's research. Uh, Andrew Huberman down at Stanford, neuroscientist, is doing a lot of work looking at what happens to the brain in different breathing states. I specifically did not go in too deep into looking at old traumas, how they are harbored in different areas of the brain and how breathing can help elicit or, or open these states up to help you deal with the core problems. But we do know that specific rates of breathing, specific ways of breathing will affect the brain in different ways, be that with blood flow or be that with brain waves. And so once you are able to get the brain functioning normally, you're able to have more access to these things. And I think that so many people are in this chronic state of stress where nothing's really, they're just compensating the whole time. The body's fantastic. If you're breathing improperly, it will find a way to compensate, to get you the oxygen you need. But that doesn't mean you're healthy. So instead of just trying to keep up, just trying to keep your head above water the whole time, which is what so many people can are forced to do because of the modern age in which we live in, breathing and taking control of your breath can help you get a little bit above that to help you deal with some real underlying, the core problems of underlying conditions. So, uh, you know, the connection between brain and body and body and brain to me is all tied. Breathing is the anchor between these two things. If you're looking at efferent or afferent, connections between the vagal response and most of those connections, 80% go from the body to the brain. It's not just the brain telling the body what to do. The brain needs to get input and 80% of those messages are coming from the body. So all of those organs, if they're sending the proper messages that you're in a relaxed state, the brain is going to then acclimate to that certain state and become calmer. And, and we know that, especially with vagal response. And I know that Dr. Stephen Porges has done a lot of work looking at emotional states and the neuroscience of breathing as well. I think that the, the, there's so much, I mean, the future of, I think that research is to really understand how we can, you know, change these old mental, emotional patterns of behavior. Um, this is Ayurveda, Vedic science was all about, you know, full human potential. 
And you got to let go of the old traumas to, to free yourself in, in that emotional way, which is, I think is really important. The diaphragm, sort of an important muscle. Uh, and I did a, they did a study with uh, elite athletes and half of them didn't have a diaphragm that was contracting and relaxing fully. Um, Carl Stow, you wrote about in your book, who, who uh, trained those Olympic athletes in Mexico City with the black gloves and they won the old gold medals and they had, and that was a technique that was designed to, to strengthen the muscles of expiration, but because it was all about breathing all the way out. But in hospitals around the world, there's techniques called inspiratory muscle training, which are techniques to strengthen the muscles of inspiration. And when you breathe in, that's when you contract your diaphragm. When you breathe out, your diaphragm relaxes. Um, and it turns out that the inspiratory muscle training is identical to a breathing technique I write about called pratiloma, where you actually, instead of using a device, you partially close your nostrils a little bit, breathe in against resistance, and that resistance by partially closed nostrils forces your diaphragm to fully contract, and then you breathe out and you do the rounds of that with breath holds, and you get these amazing benefits, critically important for COVID to make sure that you can breathe you know, through a respiratory immune event for sure. And, and so, so we have these breathing techniques. Some are strengthening muscles of inspiration. Some are strengthening muscles of expiration. I'm curious what your take is on Carl Stau's work, where it was, had phenomenal benefits for the diaphragm, but it was strengthening the ability for really the, the, the muscles of the, the secondary muscle breathing, your abdominal muscles were really contracting in that regard, as opposed to the diaphragm. I'd love to get your take on, on that, if you, if you could. I think there are two sides of the same coin. What I mean by that is so many of us lose flexibility right here, especially as we grow older and we start losing right. lung capacity. And we also stop using our diaphragms in, in the most fluid fluid movement. Our, our diaphragmatic movement starts, starts moving like this, right? When it really should be moving like this. So when I looked uh, at inspiratory and expiratory muscle uh, training, which absolutely works, uh, mostly inspiratory, there are more, more benefits from what I've seen in inspiratory. They're still doing the same thing. They're, they're training, they're making your diaphragm stronger, and they're loosening this area here and increasing lung capacity. So the specifics of Stau, he was finding, uh, mostly working with singers, he was Ah, la, la, la. They were just packing air and packing air and packing air. So their diaphragms were staying, were just not moving up too much for, for the exhale. They were just staying down here. And, and with the emphysemics, the same thing. They were just, they weren't exhaling. So he found the most benefit was, of course, you need that fluidity of movement for the diaphragm to go down to take a deep breath. Everyone knows, and well, most, most people know that. But he thought what was less acknowledged is you also need that diaphragm to go up. You need the range of motion. So by just using that, I mean, his work with emphysemics was never discredited either. I mean, these people who were left for dead walked out of the hospital while by learning how to breathe. And something that's that's been very interesting is I've gotten about four or five emails from people who were had been absolutely cured by Carl Stow's therapy, 100%, and they knew him. They said, we were sure this guy was just gonna die away in obscurity and no one was ever gonna look at him again. So it's pretty, pretty powerful stuff, but not only for emphysemics and people with, with chronic respiratory problems, but 
with athletes, as he showed with the runners at the 1968 Olympics. They were the only athletes not to take oxygen before or after the race. They're like, we don't need to. We have the proper range of diaphragmatic movement. So the particulars of that that you were mentioning, um, building muscles on the inhale or exhale, I, I cannot speak to that. I have not studied that. But from what I've found is under the umbrella term or under the umbrella understanding is you have to keep this flexible. You have to engage the back of the diaphragm, get movement on the back, not just the, the front. Uh, I know that that's, that's all solid, especially as we grow older. Wow. You know, in my, in my book, Body, Mind, and Sport, I, I wrote about um, using on the exhale only during exercise to use the ujjayi breathing technique. And when you use ujjayi, that engages your abdominal muscles. And, and when you do that, you create an abdominal diaphragmatic cardiac massage, which triggers the vagus response. And the mechanism for why we saw massive brainwave coherence and alpha production in the brain, a meditative brain during vigorous exercise versus mouth breathing, where we saw nothing but stress, you know, um, was this kind of abdominal diaphragmatic cardiac massage you got from the exhalation as when, and of course, then the, the natural reaction to that was a, a full inhalation, but the, but the exhale was sort of the key trigger, a full exhale responded because responded to a kind of full natural inhalation. Um, and I think that, that may have been the mechanism is why we saw all these brainwave patterns change um, dramatically. Um, but I agree with you, I think it's both. And, and, and in that regard, I wonder, what is your favorite breathing technique? Because I think it, while, if you boil it all down, I think we've overbreathed oxygen. We've underbreathed CO2 because we sit around, we look at our computer, we're like this all the time. Like you said in your book so beautifully, we, we go into the CPR position to open up our airway so our necks are like that. And we walk around with our head way forward, our head extended, and we get all neck shoulder problems. And that's because we overbreathe oxygen and we underbreathe CO2. And of course, CO2 is what actually disassociates the oxygen from your hemoglobin and oxygenates your tissue. So if you don't have enough CO2 in your system, all the oxygen stays on your, your, in your blood and never gets to your brain or your tissues or your muscles if you're an athlete. So you have compromised performance, right? So, so tr really training us not to feel air hunger at the littlest breath hold um, is what we have to move through. So I wonder what you would recommend is your best technique for building CO2 tolerance that anybody could do. Yeah, and just as you had said, it's about gently, very softly building that tolerance. You, someone with anxiety or asthma, you wouldn't have them try to maximum breath hold of two minutes. Right. Bad idea. And this is the premise of so much of your work is that soft and slow building the aerobic base like starting with sleep tape and knowing you're going to rip it off for two weeks, your story about nasal breathing. You're like the first few weeks of this were awful. My performance plummeted. And then after a couple months, you're like, I'm about at the same level as I was with mouth breathing. That's cool. And then right. six months later, you said, wow, I've, I've far exceeded, you know, this is a fast food culture. So within a day if people are like, I don't see any results, where are the results? 
um, people get a little frustrated, but I think that's starting to change a little bit in our understanding of food and nutrition, knowing it's not all about just shooting goo down your throat and thinking you're going to be okay. So I think people now have, have the time and patience to really let themselves acclimate. And slow breathing, breathing through the nose is number one. That's the first thing. If you can't do it, you have to figure out a way of doing it. Dr. Jack Arnayak at Stanford, he said, if your sink is plugged, you find a way of clearing it. And the nose has to be the same thing. Yes, a lot of people need surgical interventions, but not everyone. This thing is extremely messed up. I've broken it about two or three times, uh, deviated septum, all of the above. But I used what I had and tried to optimize it and, and was really able to show some huge benefits after just a few months of nasal breathing. So start with nasal breathing and then start breathing less. And a lot of people think, oh, that, why would I, I'm not going to get oxygen. How? It's not how it works. This is so counterintuitive. It took me a couple months to get my head around it. But we've known this in science. Christian Bohr was talking about this 120 years ago. So what I've found is a great tool. A lot of people have these things nowadays in the day of, uh, days of COVID. It's a pulse oximeter. So whenever you think, oh, I'm breathing so, there's no way I'm getting enough oxygen. That need to breathe is dictated by CO2, and most of us could use more CO2 to operate at peak efficiency. So I would go on a stationary bike with this and breathe at different levels and watch what was happening with my oxygen. And I was shocked to find when I was really pedaling it out, going as hard as I could, breathing through my nose at a rate that felt like I said, there was no way I was breathing six times a minute, which seems impossible, these huge breaths, thinking I must be so in danger of not have, I must be down to 85% oxygen. I was at about 97. It was more than I was before breathing more. So this is a great device just to give people comfort that what you're doing, you're not denying yourself oxygen, you're increasing your CO2. And you're going to notice when you start doing this, when you breathe slower, you breathe less, you're going to say, wow, I feel all this warmth in my fingers and in my toes and in the back of my neck. That is an increase of circulation and oxygenation to those areas, which is exactly what you want. You want more circulation. You don't want to cut off circulation to areas. That's what happens when we don't have enough CO2. Right. And you can also use that oximeter if when you do get comfortable nose breathing and you're starting to do intermittent hypoxia or breath yeah. retention, that's when you want this oximeter because you can tell exactly how, if you are in intermittent hypoxia and then how long you want to stay there, which is, uh, which is really important. You mentioned, um, uh, what was her name? Um, the woman who's doing um, uh, the, the research on sleep apnea and nose breathing. Any updates on that? Is that been done yet? I know your book was, it was in your book. So I figured sometimes a year goes by before the book comes out. Has that been actually um, been done? Any update on that? I just talked to her uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, that's Ann Kearney, doctor of speech yeah. language pathology at Stanford. She was a mouth breather. She had chronic problems, respiratory problems, ironic for a breathing therapist at Stanford. She started using sleep tape. She prescribed it to all of her patients. She is convinced that sleep tape can have a measurable impact on snoring and sleep apnea. So she has been trying to boot up the study with 200 people looking at them, sleep tape versus no sleep tape, CAT scans, everything. Even uh, she's gonna have continuous blood sugar monitor, like the whole deal. 
She yeah. has not booted that up yet. The coronavirus has, has really messed things up for that. Um, but that's that's in the plan. And the fact that Stanford's studying this, looking at this, the, you know, 30 years ago, you were getting people to unsubscribe from your newsletter, calling it quackery. It's just ironic how, how things just take take a long time, you know, to, to really see the light. And I think that we're this is a moment where we're starting to really realize the true potential and power of breathing. Oh, God. I mean, I spent so many, you know, years talking to, you know, pulmonologists and medical doctors and comparative anatomists, asking the difference between nose breathing and mouth breathing. Every one of them told me I was crazy. There's no difference. There's no difference. And I was like, and then they would, they would tell me literally that we only need the only, we only need the upper two lobes of our lungs to breathe. We don't even need the lower three lobes. And I'm going like, why do we have them then? And why do we have this intricate breathing apparatus stuck here if it doesn't matter? And I just couldn't move the needle. And you have not only, you blew the needle up. Uh, it's so, I'm so grateful for your work and what you're doing because you know, I, have, I have 30 year old patients now coming in with sleep apnea, diagnosed sleep apnea, 30 years old. That's, that's, that's unheard of. And I just think what you're doing is, oh gosh, I'm so grateful. I'm so honored to, to, to talk to you. And, and uh, um, you know, he has a website, uh, Mr. James Nestor. N-E-S-T-O-R. And then on his website there, he has the bibliography over 500 and some odd studies proving what we're talking about. And I know when you're contrarian, I wrote a book called Eat Wheat, which is all about like why wheat's not the cause of everybody's problem. I had 604 references. I knew I was going to get clobbered, right? And uh, I know you have, you're like, I'm going to make sure I stack this thing with science so no one can dispute me, you know? And I totally get that. And I love that you did that. But that research is available on his website, mrjamesnestor.com. Uh, James, I would love to have you back. Uh, I, 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 anything I can do to help move your, move you, help you with your work or move the needle, uh, I'm going to you know, promote this to our, our group and get the word out and get everybody to read this book, best book I ever read. So please um, get a copy of that as soon as, you, as soon as you can. Thank you, James. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me.